second interview with uh, this is the second interview with Bill Lacey for the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas. I didn't mention yesterday and should uh, today that you are the director of the Institute. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are in the Institute's offices in Lawrence, Kansas. And today is Thursday, June 19th, and I'm Brian Williams. Uh, we're going to pick up some items from yesterday that we didn't cover, and uh, in no particular order. Um, Let's, let's start with um, the Bosnian intervention, which became an issue in the 96 campaign. Yeah, I, and I think that's a, it's, it's a, an example of Bob Dole's style of leadership uh, on a couple of levels. Uh, in 1995, of course, President Clinton wanted to send U.S. forces into Eastern Europe uh, to prohibit the genocide. And uh, he had called the senator uh, who was then, of course, the majority leader in the Senate, and asked him uh, for his support. And the senator summoned a very small group of campaign advisors, I think there were four or five of us together, to talk this through and everything. And so he gave us each a chance to talk. He kind of presented that, that the president had called him and asked him for this. He was thinking through and wanted to give the president an answer, but he wanted us to at least have a chance to have our say. Uh, before he did that. And so when he got to me as the strategist in the campaign, I was prepared. I just had reams of polling data to show that the American voters were totally against this intervention, and in specifically the Republican voters were even more against this intervention, and they thought it was unnecessary and uncalled for. And he, he listened very patiently the first time through, and um, uh, and, and then said to the group in so many ways, uh, you know, I think I'm going to have to support the president. And so I spoke up again, and I said, Senator, I said, this is a bad political move. Uh, I, I have a tremendous admiration for the leadership that you're showing in taking that position, but it is bad politics for, the, for you and for the campaign. And, and, and at about that point, he just very politely cut me off, and he said, that's enough. He said, I've heard your argument once. You make a good argument, but I feel like I have to support the president. It's my responsibility to support the commander-in-chief. And um, I thought that was very telling. I thought it was telling in not only the obvious way that, that he clearly um, uh, wanted to support Clinton, even though it was unpopular and it could potentially hurt him in his campaign. But also, I think it shows one of the things that was, a, that was one of Bob Dole's qualities all along uh, in, in the U.S. Senate and uh, even here at the Dole Institute to a large degree. He consults a lot of people. He talks to people. He really likes to hear other people's points of view, and he's a great listener. And uh, before he went out and made that decision, he at least gave us a chance to, to go to court and make our case. We failed, but at least you know we had the chance to do that. Was it a unanimous decision among the four or five of you that he should uh, not support the president? I, as I remembered, it was an overwhelming uh, opinion of the political people in the room. Um, I think maybe there might have been a couple of non, when I say non-political, I mean more of his, his Sheila or somebody like that may have been there and may have really felt he had to support the president. But... We were all making it from a political point of view, and no, I think it was pretty overwhelming that we thought it was a bad idea, politically. 
Do you think that part of his decision uh, was also based upon a, a feeling of affinity for the Bosnian situation? Might he have, in his heart of hearts, do you think, uh, have been supportive of the president's position? Not because he was the president, but because he oh, I, was the right I, thing? I, I think that's why. I, I think he was doing it because it was the right thing, not because it was supporting Clinton. I, you know, I don't think Bob Dole would ever feel compelled to support at least a Democratic president because the president wanted it. I think he felt it was the, I absolutely think he felt it was the right thing to do. And remind me of about when that issue came up in the course of the lead-up to the election? Well, it would have been in uh, roughly, I think, in the middle of 1995. So you're talking about several months before the, the first contest. And do you feel that it, it in the end, had some salience uh, as, a, as a voter decision-making no, issue? No, actually, I, I, I don't because there was no, once, once Dole announced his support, uh, it became pretty much a bipartisan issue, and I don't think there was, I don't recall that there was a huge bitter debate over the intervention, and, um, uh, you know, which ultimately shows that, that Senator Dole was right in his judgment. So um, an, another, um, another issue uh, was the uh, announcement, the lead-up to the announcement of the candidacy. Yeah, we, we talked a little bit about that yesterday, but I just I, I found it really I find it really fascinating as I was I was trying to think things that we didn't cover as thoroughly as I probably should have yesterday, Brian. Um, um, the senator had always kind of was notorious almost for not reading speeches before he gave them, and um, uh, it was always a real struggle to convince him to to, uh, to to rehearse or practice or something. And so, but we, we actually convinced him to do that with the announcement speech. And um, it was really interesting because he not only was convinced to, uh, to actually rehearse, but I mean, he actually bought into it. It wasn't kind of like, you know, I'm going to humor these guys by doing this a couple times. He actually called me and said uh, the weekend before the announcement, it was actually a couple days before the weekend before the announcement, and I think the announcement was on Monday in Topeka. He called me maybe on Wednesday or Thursday and said, uh, you know, Elizabeth and I are going to fly down to Bal Harbor on, um, on Friday. Why don't, you, um, why don't you come down on Saturday um, and um, we'll rehearse Saturday during the day, and then you can fly with us uh, Sunday out to, uh, out to Kansas. And so I took Stuart Stevens, who was our media consultant on the campaign, and uh, Stuart and I flew out there commercially, or flew down there commercially. Um, I think Mike Glasner picked us up at the airport, or, or we caught a cab in. And I actually, actually, I believe we caught a cab in. And so then we were to call Mike's room when we got there, and he told us to come on up to the senator's room. And this was one of the more amazing things I saw in my, lo in my life. I think I, I've seen Bob Dole not wearing a tie maybe, you know, three or four times. I mean, I've always seen him in his office once. They, uh, Mrs. Dole, then Mrs. Dole, now Senator Dole, had a uh, birthday party for him over at the Watergate in, a, in, in around 87, I think. And a bunch of us went over there, and he had an open-collar shirt. But that was one of the few times I'd ever seen him in an open-collar shirt. So, so anyway, we walk into the room, and Mike greets us, and he says the senator and a bunch of his friends are are out on the uh, the balcony and sitting out in the sun and, and talking. Why don't you come on out? So we went out and they greeted us. And so the first thing I know, 
is the senator is sitting there wearing shorts and Nikes and a T-shirt. And so, I mean, that in and of itself was mind-boggling. But then the cast of characters there, he had Bob Strauss, the noted Democratic uh, uh, Party leader, and, uh, you know, who's just considered one of the giants of politics, Dwayne Andreas of ADM, several other individuals who were just, you know, you'd say they were just very powerful people. And all these guys were just sitting there dressed casually and just uh, chewing the fat together. And, you know, it was a whole different vision of Bob Dole than I'd ever seen before. It was very, very curious. And we eventually left, had lunch, set up the teleprompter, the camera equipment, and he came down and practiced his speech. And um, he actually ran through it multiple times and was really dedicated to, uh, uh, to getting it down right and to taking ownership of it, making sure the language worked for him, you know, dropping certain words, adding certain words, adding a line here, a punchier line there, and really did an outstanding job on it. And then the most ironic thing happened on our stop in um, in Ohio when we went there, which would have been, I think, the second or the third day of the tour, is after all this time that, that, that Senator Dole had practiced using the teleprompter, the damn teleprompter broke, and he had no teleprompter to use, so he had to go back to the old text. So, but it was really different. Very different, uh, very different approach to things. Sig it signaled to me, excuse me, it signaled to me that there was a seriousness in his intent that I had not seen in 88. And maybe it was more a matter of he was, uh, you know, relatively new as Republican leader in, 80, in 87. He'd been elected right after the election in um, 86, I think. And maybe he was just, you know, maybe the leadership piece of it was a lot easier and required less of his time at that point. But I, I don't know. My guess would be that he had finally acknowledged in his own mind the need for preparation. Yeah, he, he, he has never, in all my dealings with him, he's never struck me as the kind of guy who would do something to please you if he thought it was a waste of his time, um, you know at least in something like this. And the guy always struck me, has always struck me as being so smart and uh, so capable that uh, I think another of the challenges that, that, that he had in terms of running for president was he didn't like to say the same things over and over again, you know, and, and, and this, this notion that you go out day after day and repeat the same stupid things just drove him crazy. And... Uh, uh, and I can understand that, and I appreciate that. And when he did deliver the announcement address in Topeka, uh, that was smooth and well done? And yeah, it was It was actually very well done. Um, uh, Mari had, uh, had 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 some health issues leading right up to the announcement, and so she was not hands-on on the speech as much as I would have preferred uh, near the end. I actually kind of took over and... And, and fiddled with it a little bit. Rick Smith worked on it a little bit, provided some ideas. Uh, but, you know, Mari and Rick are both wordsmiths. I was just a political campaign strategist, and so I wasn't really qualified. But I knew Dole pretty well at that point. I'd worked with him a long time, about, uh, about 20 years at that point. And so I kind of knew the way he spoke and the way he liked to do things and stuff. So it worked out well. Uh, we actually shot a campaign film that, that features a large piece of the speech, and so 
uh, that kind of shows you that, that we felt he did an outstanding job delivering it because it just fit perfectly well into that film that we did. Do you have any observations on his uh, response to the State of the Union address in uh, January 96? Uh, yeah, that was the one I think, if memory serves me correctly, Brian, where he looked, didn't look all that great and didn't, was not perceived by the, the national media as being very strong or anything. I, I think that was probably a function, going back to what we talked about some yesterday. Um, in both those campaigns, you had a guy who was dealing with two jobs that would kill any normal one person. You know, he was the Republican leader in the Senate, and he was running a presidential campaign. And, um, you know, we may very well see a Republican or a Democratic uh, party leader succeed and be nominated president at some point in the future, but it is a real challenge because those are two very demanding roles. And I thought it was, I'm sure it was an extraordinarily difficult decision for him when he chose to leave the Senate, and an extraordinarily painful uh, decision for him. Uh, but I thought that was really, that sign showed to me when he did that in summer of 96 that he truly was committed to this race and that uh, in, in, in his own way he was basically saying no turning back, second place isn't good enough. This is probably a good point for you to talk about uh, Richard Ben Kramer's book, What It Takes. Yeah, uh, that Richard wrote that book during the uh, you know during the build up to the '88 uh, uh, campaign, and um, it really is from my point of view. And when, when it came out, I mean, I said and I read, and if if you look at the organization of the book, what he did is he covered, I believe, six of the presidential candidates, three on each side, and um, for whatever reasons. And if Richard Ben were here, and I've actually talked to him about it, but this is for him to say, not me. But for whatever reasons, he seemed to get inside Bob Dole's head more than anybody uh, that's ever written about uh, Senator Dole. And so what it takes is about six candidates, but when it came out, I, when I read through it the first time, I just read the Dole sections because he really skillfully, instead of kind of just laying it all out, he divided it into sections, and so each section featured one of the six candidates that he uh, uh, that he was writing about, and it he got Senator Dole's speech patterns down precisely, kind of the Midwestern uh, speech style that that Dole had. He got under grasp of how Dole thought about things, how he approached things. He had really complete access to the campaign, and the campaign worked with him. He, campaign enjoyed working with him. And it really is the it, it is a definitive book in two ways in my view. It's definitive in its treatment of Bob Dole. Uh, somebody will come around and write a full-scale biography of Bob Dole someday. That will be outstanding as well, but uh, that was far and away the best treatment of Bob Dole that has been done to date. Uh, even though it was only a relatively brief portrait and, and not as in-depth as you would do a full-scale uh, uh, biography. But it's also uh, definitive in another way. I just think uh, it's the best book ever written on American politics and presidential candidate uh, uh, character. It is, I mean, he covers, you know, Bush, and I forget the other Republican, and, and Senator Biden, and I believe Governor Dukakis on the Democratic side, and one other. 
and it's astounding. And I just, I tell everybody the first book you ought to read about Bob Dole is, is what it takes. Did you observe him at work during that campaign? Oh, yeah, he interviewed me like you're interviewing me right now. Um, he would come in and, and we would talk and trade phone calls from time to time. He had a great researcher on it, uh, Mark uh, Zahnwitzer, who's gone on to uh, uh, to do some incredible stuff on his own and his own right. And uh, um, Richard Bennett was just fabulous. Was there, I guess there wasn't any chronicler of that caliber on the 96 campaign, is that correct? Well, I think I think Bob Woodward did a masterful job with the choice, but Bob was what Richard did is Richard really reached into the character. That was his goal and and what Bob tries to do is he tries to basically write history where no history could be written because he has to go and and get the access and everything. And so uh, Bob is unique in his approach to things because what he does is he talks to so many people that he kind of tries to reconstruct the events and he did an unbelievable job on that book. I think those two books are really, um, uh, and of course I'm, I'm biased because I've read them both and helped the authors with both of them, but I feel that they are really far better than the run-of-the-mill campaign books. I think they're two of the best ever done. I noticed that Woodward uses a technique of, of really expansive quotes of, of people, um, and you were quoted um, among lots of others. Were his quotes accurate, generally speaking? Generally speaking, they were outstanding, and uh, he would tape the interviews so that they had the uh, the backup on everything. And it took me for a while. It took me a while to be able to talk to Bob the way that he wanted me to talk about things because. Uh, I was still relatively young in 95, and I had never given, granted anybody access, but we had agreed pretty much as a campaign, and the center was totally on board on giving him pretty much full access. And um, so, so that's what we did. And I remember starting out, Bob really, I never felt he pushed me to do anything that wasn't absolutely the truth of, or the way I saw it at the time. Uh, I, I don't think he ever tried me to get me to reconstruct things. What he tried to do is he would say, well, now tell me some of your language, kind of what was your thought process? And he would really dig deep on stuff so he could go back and recreate it. So when you say, did, did his quote seem right? Uh, I don't know because I can't remember sometimes if I talk, I talk to so many people, I can't remember sometimes what I said about a subject yesterday. But is it believable that I said that? Yeah, I think that by and large with everything that, that I saw in that book, I would believe that the people saying it actually said that or said something that was one or two words different, but in terms of content and meaning were identical. Do you have any notion why he didn't continue that book right to the November final? Election? You know, he told me at the time, and I honestly am, am not sure. I believe, if memory serves me correctly, Brian, what he wanted to do is he wanted that book to be not a history of the nominating process, but a window into the campaigns. And timing on his books, as you've noticed, is really important. And, uh, you know, Bob writes very high-quality stuff, but it's commercial stuff as well. And I think it was probably a timing issue. And, uh, you know, Richard's book, I mean, 
if it had come out during the campaign, or, or even if he had written the book prior to these men actually jumping into the race, it could have had a huge impact because, I mean, the way that he treats Bob Dole just lifts him to a whole different level. Uh, talking about candidates in context and whatnot, uh, you've had the advantage of a trip, or maybe more than one, to Russell, Kansas, which I'm sorry I haven't been able to do myself. <laughs> yeah, well, we should have we should have required you to go to Russell and do some interviews as part of this. But since we limited the the scope more to uh, Senator Dole's Senate years, there's a reason for that. I've I've only been to Russell twice actually, but uh, to to both announcements. That's when I was in Russell, and uh, it's uh, it's it's an, an intriguing small town. It's uh, I'm from a small town in Tennessee, and there's similarities, but there's great differences all. But what always struck me about Russell is just being incredible. And people who come here to the Dole Institute and who go around and find out about, you know, they look at the Russell window, which is a stained glass window that depicts Main Street Russell about the time the senator was growing up. And they hear the story about the cigar box that uh, the, the town sent around to collect money for, for Senator Dole's operations. and 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 near the end of the exhibits they they get to go inside one of the local establishments in Russell to for a visa commercial I think it is um, um, I, the thing that really astounded me in those two visits was the the folks warmth and support of Bob Dole I mean uh, it was like it was like you know Mick Jagger or Keith Richard returning to home and just being mobbed and everything and uh, just enormous energy and enthusiasm. It was uh, all out of this little tiny town, so it was, it was really very special. The Bob Dole that you know, it, would you say that he's become over the years a kind of combination of Washington savvy and culture and still the hard scrabble Midwestern I, I don't. I, I would put it differently. I would say, generally speaking, yes. But I, I would put it differently. I, I think who he's become is really simply an extension of, you know, uh, of of what he was brought up to be in his life, his experiences in the war. You know, I'm a. In terms of looking at you know character and political figures, I'm a firm believer that their past speaks uh, very loudly about what they'll do and what they're capable of doing in the future. And I think that. The war experience was very hard on Bob Dole, but it clearly shaped him as as a person. And uh, you know, he, he we had in here the other day our our Dole scholars, and he actually said in his comments by phone to the Dole scholars that he was very disdainful of his classes at school when he started at KU, and um, um, and and he he said he was making horrible grades. And then he went off to uh, war, and he came back a different man because of his devastating injuries. And it occurred to him one day during his recovery that he couldn't make his, his living and his life anymore with his body the same way that other uh, individuals could, that he had to do it with his mind. And from that time forward, when he re-enrolled at, at Washburn University, he received all A's except one from then forward after having an abysmal record before that. that that's, a pretty telling, uh, that's a pretty telling point I thought he made just the other day. Um, 
Let's, let's move then. This is a good way to, to move on to the Dole Institute and how it came to be and what your thoughts are and aspirations for it. Yeah, well, I, th I, I know you're doing an interview of Rick, or you've done one of Rick, so I think how it came to be, I would leave in his uh, very capable hands. Uh, uh, what, what I'm really, the way I look at it now, I'm kind of charged with, uh, at least for as long as I'm here, with uh, Bob Dole's legacy, and I kind of see this as the place where uh, we will maintain, uh, you know, a tribute for, for to Bob Dole in perpetuity. And he really wanted, this was very important to the senator, and Rick probably talked about this in his remarks, but uh, Bob Dole really wanted this place not to be a library and a monument to him. He really wanted it uh, to be more about the people of today's generations. And he wants it to be a, a, a place that is alive and that's breathing and is active and that encourages people to get involved and, and to take bigger roles. And that's kind of what we focused on here. You know, we have a bipartisan mission. Uh, we have lots of Republicans, lots of Democrats. We try to maintain a philosophical balance. And generally speaking, I think do a fairly good job of that. But what we're really trying to do is reach out, especially to students, but really not just students, but the community, all Americans and really people across the world who tune into our website at various times to watch our programs that we video and make available to everybody. Just, you know, encourage them to be more involved in their communities, to be more involved in their politics, uh, to look at politics differently than they might, maybe a little less negative light, to be a little bit more civil and courteous in their treatment of, you know, controversial issues. Uh, you know, I think people really are getting tired of what you see on cable TV now, you know, it's kind of 24-7 yelling and screaming and interrupting people and and it's it's the best soundbite wins rather than the most rational, thought out, well thought out, reasoned argument wins. And uh, we just want to try to to be a little bit of uh, a little bit of a positive influence in that respect. What's your take on the citizenship commitment of Kansans? Uh, is voter participation fairly high here? Uh, voter participation is okay here. I don't know that it's uh, dramatically better than it is in other states. I think that, uh, generally speaking, uh, my experience, and I'm from the South, as I think you know, but my experience in the Midwest is that people are very community are probably more community-minded than they are in other parts of the country. They're probably a little bit more public service-minded than in some other parts of the country that I've been in. But, uh, but I don't know that you can measure that empirically or objectively. Um, I will say that our, our, uh, the programs that we do here that are oriented towards service and, and civic engagement are extraordinarily well-received. Uh, uh, as you know, we had the the, the Dole Scholars Program, uh, the recipients of the scholars and family members were in here on Tuesday for lunch. We had 150 people. Uh, we do a, we just started the, the year after I got here, a Civic Youth Leadership Institute. Uh, I was thinking one day, well, geez, you have basketball camps, you have football camps, why couldn't you have a leadership camp? And so we started two years ago with the idea of having 50 high school juniors, meaning they would be seniors next year, uh, come, learn about the Dole Institute, uh, get lectures from authorities on different, you know, political leadership issues, go visit the Capitol with our associate director who's a state representative, uh, and generally just kind of 
um, uh, get their feet in the water uh, a year early on what the college lifestyle is like because they actually stay on campus. They stay in dorm rooms for two nights and it's really quite an experience for them and they don't have to pay a penny to do this. It's something we fund completely. So for two years we had about 50, 50 or 60 applicants and we accepted everyone. But it's starting to get around now. So this year we had over 100 applicants. So we had to reject over half of our applicants this year uh, because we like to keep class size to 50. But that kind of effort, while you're only reaching 50 high school uh, juniors uh, a year, you know, you do that year after year after year. And if you did that in every state and if you did that at every university, uh, there would be huge changes in this country. Are you aware of, of other um, state universities that are doing similar programs? Are you there, are a, there are a number of political institutes around the country, uh, not a lot, but a number of them that are connected to state schools that, uh, that do similar programs. Uh, I don't know about you know leadership camps for high school students or stuff, but I know that Senator Baker has, uh, you know, in the works, a wonderful institute at the University of Tennessee. I know that uh, uh, the Lyndon Johnson School at the University of Texas is, uh, is outstanding. Um, but we're, we're, you know, we're less about education and more, you know, about enriching the, the educational experience and providing outside opportunities for students and others. What do you think Dole's legacy will be over time? I think a lot of people remember him as, you know, as a party leader, as a presidential candidate, uh, as the party nominee in 96, but I really think his legacy is going to be, as we've discussed in the past, his leadership in the United States Senate. It is clear to me that uh, well, it, it's factually correct that he's the longest running Republican leader in history. That speaks volumes right there about his, uh, uh, the immense uh, admiration that his colleagues and respect his colleagues had for him. And I've always thought that, you know, the best thing you can ever do in life is to have the, you know, your colleagues at a very, very high level select you as, you know, the first among equals. That, that to me is profound, very profound. Uh, but it goes beyond that. They just genuinely liked the guy. They knew he was fair. Uh, the Democrats liked him and got along with him great. Ted Kennedy liked him, and uh, Tom Harkin, and uh, George McGovern, and Senator Dole worked on a lot of stuff together. And uh, uh, so there's there's that there's that nice piece of bipartisanship there as well. But really, uh, I think it's his it's his leadership in the Senate. It's his style. It's the way that he treated people all equally, all fairly. And uh, it was really I think that's what he'll be known for. Over the course of his career, uh, the, the culture in the Senate has changed quite a bit. And what are your thoughts on, on that? Well, one of the reasons the Dole Institute was uh, created, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, or one of our missions, I should say, is to really promote civility and courtesy. And, and there's a lot of acrimony in Washington, D.C. now. Um, the members don't appear to get along. They don't appear to to like each other. In many cases, they don't even appear to know each other. It's almost as if uh, they don't sit down and talk about issues, which in fact is really closer uh, to truth than, than I would care to admit sometime because when people see them on TV and all, many people may not be aware that the, the Senate chamber or the House chamber is empty when somebody's giving a speech. 
and a lot of it is for, for show and not go. And, uh, you know, it, that's because of a huge variety of factors. And it's frankly, it's not all that different from our society as a whole. I mean, society where you have, uh, you know, such levels of coarseness in our culture, you have road rage incidents, you have all of that stuff going on. You know, politics kind of reflects that. And I don't think politics is responsible for it. I think it's something, you know, deeper based. But one thing that we try to emphasize is you can talk about controversial issues and you can do so in a rational way and you can do, do so in a courteous way. We want to promote the notion that it's okay for Americans to disagree. And in fact, that it's better for Americans who disagree to sit down and talk about those differences and better understand the other person's point of view, even if it doesn't change yours, but to better understand that person's point of view. So instead of taking the view that I am right and you are wrong, take the view more or less that there's a couple of ways to skin the cat and I've got enough votes this time so we're going to skin the cat my way. Um, I think it was, yeah, it was Richard Ben Kramer who talked about the, what he called the intoxication and the hyper-existence of campaigns. He used those terms. And you've, you've been in that place. Uh, what has it been like for you? What would have been what does it feel like? Well, I mean, first of all, campaigns used to, uh, you know, run a matter of a few months, even a presidential race. I believe, if I remember correctly, Brian, uh, Senator Dole announced his, nine, his 88 campaign in November of 87. Now, we actually went to work in about March or April of that year, uh, kind of as an exploratory committee. So. We were running, but uh, everybody knew that it was uh, uh, official um, by, no, by November, I think it was. And in the 96 race, we actually had a campaign set up uh, by January. And I remember that very vividly because I'd just come off Fred Thompson's uh, Senate first Senate race, and uh, I was really kind of tired. And, and I said to um, everybody really felt that we had to get up and running. I said, I think we can wait a couple months. We're not going to lose any anything in a couple months. But they strongly disagreed. And I, I said to Joanne, I said, i got to have some time off. She said, you just go, do whatever you want to do, come back, uh, you know, at the end of January, mid-February, whenever it was, and, and we'll take care of all that. So they act, actually, by the time I got back, they were actually starting to, uh, um, you know, put together the, the basics of the campaign, the basic operations, and then Scott Reed had been there a few days before I got back, or maybe a week before I got back, and then he brought in people to kind of set up the infrastructure, and we moved to, to a bigger office and everything. But uh, just that just is amazing. And then people ask me about my recent experience running Fred Thompson's campaign. Uh, Fred asked me to, to go into it last August when he was in a, in a pretty difficult situation. He had a lot of support, but he had no campaign. And, um, uh, you know, we had five months before the first contest when I got there. And pulling together a presidential campaign in five months is just sheer impossibility um, in today's age for a couple reasons. Uh, one, it's just too much to do in a short period of time. By contrast, when Fred ran for U.S. Senate the first time, we started his campaign in the late summer of 93. So we had like 15 months to put together a U.S. Senate race. And a, and a presidential race is not like 50 U.S. Senate races. It's, it's more ex far more exponential than that. 
but the other piece of it too is that um, because you're now in prime time, you know, a year out from a presidential campaign, the media isn't absorbing everything you say and, and looking at it through all kinds of different prisms and everything. But by the time Fred was in the race, they were at that level. And of course, all the other candidates had been out there honing their lines, honing their sound bites for literally a year and more at that point. And uh, uh, so it, it, Richard Ben Kramer is right. It, it, it's gotten a little bit crazy, and I wish we could do something about that in our country. People are going to get fed up with uh, the 24-7 year-round campaign sooner or later. But as a campaign strategist, what for you personally is the allure of getting involved in these campaigns? Well, there is no more allure now. I can tell you definitively that. I would not have done Fred's campaign if I did not feel two specific things. Number one, uh, I admire him a lot. I like him a lot. I thought he would be a great president. And two, he clearly was the genuine conservative in, 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 the, Rock of, in the Rockefeller, in the Reagan Goldwater mode. Uh, in the race, and, and, and I really felt an obligation uh, to help him. I would have never gotten involved in another campaign, and I have no intentions to do so again. But what got me involved when I was younger is there is just, uh, you know, it really is a way to make a difference. And, uh, but at some point you get too old for it, and you try to make a difference in another way. And I feel that the difference I make here with students at, at the Dole Institute every day is, is just, in many ways, just as important. <clears throat> you uh, <clears throat> described your growing political awareness uh, yesterday, pretty much starting with Goldwater. That's correct. And how do you see the Republican Party's movement through time since Goldwater, 64, and, and so forth? What, what's been the path, do you think, of the party? Well, I, I, th I think it's, I, I can chart it pretty much. I think Goldwater kind of set the philosophical, the modern, the, the philosophical base of the modern party. I thought that Richard Nixon was not a conservative president by any means and, uh, um, um, you know, history will continue to go back and forth on Nixon, uh, you know, his brilliance in uh, foreign affairs versus, uh, you know, some of his failings and character flaws. Uh, but uh, you have to give, in your question, you have to give Nixon a certain amount of credit because Nixon really figured out politically, along with his team, how a Republican Party could grow and, and emerge. And then Kevin Phillips uh, wrote what I always thought was a, an incredible book, The Emerging Republican Majority, that was published, I believe, the year, maybe two years after Nixon was elected and basically outlined how the Republican Party was going to be the majority party at some point in the future. And people literally laughed at that book when it came out. But then the real defining moment came, um, I think, more in 1976 when Ronald Reagan challenged Gerald Ford and ultimately lost the nomination, uh, actually a few miles down the road in Kansas City at the convention. But I think basically he lost that nomination, but he won the heart and the soul of the Republican Party with that campaign. And I think there was the, that was the beginning point of a fundamental shift in the party where basically once Reagan was actually elected president in 80 uh, and served as president for eight years and now is historically re, you know, regarded as being one of the best presidents of the last century and, 
and making a lot of historians top five lists uh, for best president ever. Um, I think that what that did is that really changed the whole uh, tone and tenor. And then um, Newt Gingrich came along and, uh, and, and figured out that the way you won a congressional election was that you, you tried to turn back uh, Tip O'Neill's old uh, philosophy of all politics are local, which I still believe them to be, and I think I think Speaker Gingrich would say he still believed in that concept. But he figured out a way to use a little bit of uh, a little bit of strategy to get people to vote not maybe their guy as much as our guys. And um, he had a lot of help from Bill Clinton, and he had a lot of help from Bob Dole. Uh, in a positive way uh, in electing Republicans in the Senate in 94. And at that point, as far as I'm concerned, in 95, I had been in Washington, D.C. and by 1994 for, um, you know, 17 or 18 years. And, and here in a relatively small part of, my, part, part of my adult life, we had gone from being a joke in Congress to uh, having control of both branches. And... Um, Unfortunately, uh, all of that has unraveled in the last eight years, and it's been awfully hard to watch and very difficult, and the world has changed a lot, and, and part of the issue, frankly, is that uh, Ronald Reagan was instrumental in bringing about an end to the Cold War, and the Cold War had always been an issue that had been on the front burner, and less in the 60s but more in the 80s had been a point of, um, of difference between the two parties and so the Republican Party kind of lost one leg of its coalition there and uh, uh, it's that's one thing I've observed. The other thing that I've observed and talked to a lot of my friends about is the quality of candidates on both sides of the aisle seem not anywhere as good as they used to be in terms of the level of experience, in terms of the level of uh, a life experience separated from uh, from political experience, and um, our party it bothers me that uh, uh, that our party you know I don't see yet uh, you know the quality of the individuals who are going to come forward to run for president in the future. I I know there's a bunch of them down there, but but we really need to we really need to move on to the next generation and. And, uh, and figure out what we're going to do as a party. You, you had a slip of the tongue a few minutes ago in even mentioning Rockefeller Republicans. Yes. Uh, where do you see that branch of the party, which for many years was quite powerful and has not been so? Where does that go? Well, I, I think that's a fair question. I, I think, you know, my phrase that I used for a long time um, was in, in the post-Reagan world, Republicans are all conservatives. Uh, there were liberals in Congress really through the Reagan years, but I tell you, after Reagan uh, left the White House, the number of liberal or moderate Republicans just started to precipitously decline. Part of that, I think, was due to Reagan's influence on the party. Reagan uh, clearly steered the party in a different direction, and so that meant maybe there were some liberals who no longer identified with the party. But in so steering the party in that direction, there were huge chunks of geography, political geog geography around the country uh, that Reagan finally got 
to switch and coalesce and to consider voting Republican. And ultimately, it was, it was kind of Reagan's coalition that I think elected the 94 Congress, but it had a little bit of, of help, like I say, from, from Gingrich, Dole, Clinton, and their various roles and all. And um, I think that kind of accounts for a lot. Right. I think in terms of uh, the Rockefeller, uh, uh, I don't see a Rockefeller, and when I say that I mean a more liberal or moderate influence in the party, and I don't necessarily see it coming back. We've seen a number of, uh, of prominent uh, Republicans switch parties here in Kansas, and my attitude has been, you know, if you truly believe in what the National Democratic Party stands for, that's fine, you should switch. If you truly believe what the Republican Party stands for nationally, uh, uh, that's uh, fine. You shouldn't switch. But, uh, you know, some of it's done for political expediency, but some of it's done for very legitimate reasons. And it's clear, it's clear and it's actually better for our politics, I think, that you have one party that's perceived as being conservative and one liberal. I think what's happened, though, is our party has kind of lost its way, and we've got to, um, to go back and, and, and figure out who we are and what we believe. Of course, a Democrat would have said the same thing a few years ago, so I guess this keeps happening. Yeah, well, there, there's two kinds of presidencies. There's the kind of presidency that rallies a party and motivates it and, 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 and creates a foundation to build on, and then there's a kind of presidency that fails to do that for whatever reason. And um, um, what happens next is that we've been through a period where uh, Americans uh, are not happy as a group with the way things are being done right now. And um, they're going to get a chance to switch. And the question is, do they go with John McCain or do they go with Barack Obama? If they go with John McCain, um, he's going to have a chance to change that tone. If they go with Senator Obama, he'll have a chance to change that tone. But generally speaking, unfortunately, and this is very sad, but generally speaking, most presidencies uh, in contemporary history uh, turn out to be perceived as not particularly good by, by voters. And, um, you know, there's some notable exceptions to that, and there's some disagreement to that. But generally speaking, there's nothing wrong with one political party that the other political party can't fix by going into power. So we'll see what happens this November. Good. Should we leave it there? That'd be great. Thank Good. you. Thank you. All right, Lawrence. That's it. <laughs>